I want to start where I plan to end and hope that we can kind of work full circle, just kind of come back around. So if you have uh, Bibles with you or an app on your phone, can we turn to Revelation 7? In the church I grew up in, when the pastor would tell us to do that, he'd say, when you get there, say, I got it. So when you get there, say, I got it. Oh, there we go. All right, so people got it. Uh, so we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the picture of heaven painted by John the Apostle as he writes the book of Revelation. Exile on the island of Patmos. Quick side note, if you know anything about church history, John ends up on the island of Patmos because they tried to boil him alive and he wouldn't die. So they wanted to get this guy from society and just exile him. And it was there that he writes the book of Revelation. He says here that there are people from every nation, tribe, people, and languages. What word is missing? Race. Very specifically, like John doesn't say race. And the reason for that is because our concept of race as we know it is a social construct invented in the 17th century specifically for the subjugation of an entire group of people, African people. And so I think it's important that we define terms so that we all know that we're talking about the same thing. So when I say race, I'm talking about an arbitrary classification of humans, sometimes especially formally based on any or a combination of various physical characteristics as skin color, facial form, or eye shape. That's why we have black people and white people. But while Asian people have the same skin color for the most part as white people, their eye shape is what gets them classified as a different race. So this is, this is how we're defining race. Nationality would be people from a specific nation or country. My family comes from the island of Trinidad. And so my nationality, well, my mom's nationality, would be Trinidad and then tribe. Tribe is a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious, or blood ties with a common culture and dialect, typically having a recognized leader. So tribe, that's the last one that really interests me because tribes are social. They, they have something that ties them together that doesn't necessarily have to be your race or your nationality. It doesn't even necessarily have to be blood. Like you don't have to be family to be in the same tribe. So all of you here as students at, the, at UW Lacrosse, this is your tribe. Like you're, you're a part of a tribe. I've been playing basketball for 17 years. I clearly did not make it far because I'm here today and not in the NBA. <laughs> but if you play ball, I consider you to be a part of my tribe. And if anyone is interested, I'm trying to play at the rec center tomorrow. You can talk about it after the Q&A. I got some claps. Yes. <laughs> so I would say, like, if you play ball, we're, we're the same tribe. And when it comes to being Christians, for those of us who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, we too are a tribe. And Christians tend to section themselves off into even smaller tribes. Roughly 30% of churches in America would define themselves as reformed. Reformed churches are the ones that tend to be the ones that believe in the doctrines of grace, covenant theology, and ultimately the sovereignty of God alone. These tend to be your PCA churches, Presley 
Presbyterian Church of America, you're Reformed Baptist, or you're non-denominational, but Calvinist-leaning churches like you're at Acts 29 churches. One thing to know about these churches is that they are overwhelmingly white. Like, that's just what they tend to be. And so to be Reformed in this country already puts you in a minority. And to be black and Reformed, well, you're just a unicorn. <laughs> I, I'm a unicorn. So how did I get here? How did I, this black guy from Brooklyn, New York, as black as like black can be, like I'm black and black. And if you've ever seen the movie School Days, then you get that reference. But I'm black and black. So how did I end up in this all-white church singing CCM instead of Kirk Franklin and longing to feel at home amongst family? I grew up going to church. Been in church my entire life. But being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage in Chihuahua. And so from about, I would say about my freshman year of college to about a year after, I pretended to be a Christian. Because growing up, I was taught that it was, your salvation was kind of like a light switch that you flip on and off when you're ready. So if this week you're feeling like I'm with it, then, then you're saved. And if next week you kind of fall off the wagon, then you're not. And eventually, spending some time as a spoken word artist, I end up at a conference in Philadelphia where this guy, Matt Chandler and Eric Mason, they were leading a conference called the Frequency Conference. And it was there that for the first time, after 22 years of playing the role of Christian now, Matt Chandler lays it out in this most beautiful way. God, man, Christ response. God created everything, and it was good. Man comes along and messes it up, separating our relationship with the Father. But then Jesus comes in, dies in our place, and then rises again to show that he defeated sin. To show that if we would just place our hope and our trust in him, that we could be free and we could have a relationship with the Father again. We would be whole. And so to put the icing on the cake, because I'm not that smart, and so I need God to say things like really explicitly to me. So Matt Chandler goes, you're not a Christian because you grew up in church. You're not a Christian because it's the right thing to do. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You're not a Christian because it's the best alternative amongst many options out there. But we are Christians because of who Jesus is and what he has done. It was in that moment the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and made me realize that for 22 years I've been living a lie. And so I leave that conference completely changed, renewed, transformed by the power of this gospel message. So the first thing I do is I go home and I download every single sermon I can get from Matt Chambers Church and from Eric Mason's Church. So that amounted me to about 10 years of sermons between. I had an hour drive to work and an hour drive home, and I had eight hours at work. And so for 10 hours a day, I would just listen to sermons. Just sermon after sermon after sermon. It took me about eight or nine months to bang them all out. But as I started to devour these sermons, my, my theology started to change. The things that I, that I heard in the church that I grew up in didn't match up with what I was learning over here, and so, so there was a division. And I, it eventually led me to leave the church that I grew up in. So after a while, I moved to Portland, Oregon to go to seminary and intern at a church. And then I moved back to Brooklyn. I was like, I need a church to go to. And theologically, the only churches that really matched up with where I was were these, these really, really white churches. So I was like, all right, I guess I might as well give it a try. And I did. But when you're black and reformed, we, we, we all end up going through this cycle of stuff. So you hear this new theology. And it's good. It's good sound. Biblical theology, and the first thing you do is you reject everything you learned back 
because you start to feel like you've been lied to. Like you've been bamboozled. Like how could they not teach me these things? How could I come here every Sunday for 22 years and not hear the truth of the gospel? But then eventually, you start to spend time in white churches as the only black guy, or one of three. At my church, there's three of us. And you start to realize you're by yourself. And the moment that hit for me was in the summer of 2016. It was the week that Philando Castillo and Alton Sterling were murdered. No, Philando Castillo and Terrence Crutcher. The week that they were murdered. And I sat in church, and I cried. I cried like a baby. I'm talking snot-dripping, ugly cry. Like a cry that I had not experienced since childhood. And everyone walked past me as though nothing happened. As though everything was all right. I even had someone remark to me how great the weather was that day. And so there was a deep sense of pain. How can you see me hurting? How can you see your brother dying and go on as though nothing's happening to you? And so it's at that point you start to look back and realize not everything that I learned in that church I grew up with, I grew up in as well. You know, my grandmother may not be able to articulate the doctrines of grace and be able to expound beautifully on God's soteriological purposes for his people. But if you were born in Jesus, if you were in the hospital, she was the first one there. And yet here, in this new church, with this beautiful theology, I felt all alone. And so the final step that happens is eventually you get saved. Eventually you decide, I'm just going to go back to my old church. I'm going to find a new black church. One where I don't feel like I have to sacrifice my life and still love Jesus. One where I feel like I can sing some songs that relate to me and touch me in my soul. I'm not dead yet. But I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought about it. I think all the time, maybe I should just leave this white church. Maybe I should just go find me a good black church where I can be with people who are just like me. But this is a, a very hard truth. God has called us to reach you. But that's not going to happen if we can't figure out how to be his people together. And so I don't fault people who leave. But I stay because if everyone goes, we would never see this vision of Revelation 7 fulfilled. But in order for us to do that, we have to understand how there's this organization that I work with based in St. Louis called Unmade Labor. Their entire goal is seeing racial reconciliation across the races in our country. Their tagline is there can be no reconciliation without acknowledgement. We will not be able to move forward as one people if we can't have real conversations. An inability to talk about where we have been is what keeps us from being able to talk about what's happening today. I can't talk to you about what's going on today if we can't talk about what happened. As a black man in America, I can't tell you how many times within the church, with other Christians, I've tried to have this conversation about racial justice, only to be told, let's, let's just focus on the gospel. But no one says that when we're talking about human trafficking. When we're talking about human trafficking, it's like we need to solve this issue. Because we view that as an assault on human life and godly values. But why is it that black bodies in the street or lives held down by systemic oppression are not viewed as an assault on human life? or godly values. If we're ever going to get to this place of Revelation 7, where we are a reconciled people, worshiping Jesus together, then we have to understand where we came from. 
I'm sure you guys have had enough of school this semester, but I'm going to give you a brief history lesson. So in 1619, the first slaves were brought to Jamestown, Virginia, 12 years after the college was founded. In 1861, the Civil War broke out largely over the issue of slavery. The idea that it was about states' rights is a lie that was created after the Civil War. And we know this to be true because the states couldn't stop talking about slavery. Like, if you're going to say that this is not a war about slavery, then the last thing you should say is the reason we are separating ourselves from the Union is slavery. In Mississippi, their Articles of Secession said that our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. In Texas, their Articles of Secession said that in all the non-slaveholding states, the people have formed themselves into a great sectional party, now strong enough in numbers to control the affairs of each of those states based upon an unnatural feeling of hostility to these southern states and their beneficiated patriarchal, patriarchal system of African slavery, proclaiming the debasing doctrine of equality of all men, irrespective of race or color, a doctrine at war with nature, in opposition to the experience of mankind, and in violation of the plainest revelations of divine law. They demand the abolition of Negro slavery throughout the Confederacy, the recognition of political equality between the white and Negro races, and avow the determination to press on their crusade against us so long as a Negro remains, so long as a Negro slave remains in these states. And in South Carolina, their declaration states that the primary reason behind South Carolina's secession is increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery. If anyone tells you that the Civil War was fought over states' rights, tell them to finish the sentence. States' rights. So South Carolina is special because South Carolina was a colony that was founded specifically for the purposes of slavery. In their founding charter, a planter was given 150 acres of land for every slave he brought over to the country. South Carolina modeled their form of slavery after the island of Barbados. Barbados was known at that time to be the cruelest place on earth in the treatment of their slaves. This is South Carolina. A few years ago, my wife and her family went to Charleston for vacation. And they did one of those like, walking city tours. And the tour guide says to them, this is some great plantation or another. And he very quickly goes, yeah, and then the workforce left and the economy tanked. And so her sister goes, the, the workforce left? You mean the slaves? And she looked so dumbfounded and shocked because no one had ever bothered to question him. But this is the way we, we rewrite history. So after the Civil War, we move into 100 years of Jim Crow. Jim Crow was the term for laws that were created for the express purpose of restricting the lives of the newly freed slaves. And so some of the laws that we're familiar with are the ones that had colored and whites only sections and establishments. You see, pre-Civil War, the inferior status of blacks didn't make these laws necessary, but once they were made free, white people needed a way to separate themselves. In addition to these laws, there were others created to restrict black people from voting, from living in certain neighborhoods, and having most jobs. And while Jim Crow was largely limited to the South, I don't want us to think that racism is something that just took place in the South. At the same time that all of this was going on, we had the suburbs being built, and white flight happened. So this was in an effort to get away from the 
black people who were constantly moving into the cities. The suburbs were created as a safe haven for white people so that they could separate themselves. So when we look at our cities, Milwaukee, just a few hours from here, or Minneapolis, just a few hours from here, we have to ask, why do people live here? Why do people live where they live? Why do demographics shape out the way they do? Whatever city you're from, I want you to do some research on the city. Find out how it was built. If you were raised in the suburbs, find out how those suburbs came to be. Because you had places like Levittown, Pennsylvania, that had explicit black homes. Black people cannot live here. And that was largely in New York because the South had Jim Crow. So after that, we come to the Civil Rights era. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Shirley Chisholm, some names we're familiar with. And it was a good thing that happened. Jim Crow laws were taken down, black people were given the right to vote, and it was a limit, right? No? I told you, I think you guys are talking. <laughs> let, me, let me know you're here. And that was just 60 years ago. Since then, we've had to deal with mass incarceration, continued prejudice, continued redlining. In recent history, we've had to deal with the rising tide of white nationalism. Racism in America has not gone away. It just looks a little different. Now, we Christians like to pat ourselves on the back and say, that can never be us. We would never be involved in such things. And so now we're history of the church. During slavery, white Southern Christians didn't want to baptize their slaves because they felt it was liberating. Because the idea that a Christian could be a slave was, that was just a dumb. And so slaveholders didn't want to baptize their slaves because they didn't want to free them. So pastors quickly figured out loopholes and used the Bible to justify slavery and justify slave slavery positions. Post-slavery, blacks were not allowed into white seminaries and colleges, and therefore, they had to make their own. During Jim Crow, many white evangelicals did not want to rock the boat, so they just sat by. In his book, Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson says that because evangelicals view their primary task as evangelism and discipleship, they tend to avoid issues that hinder these activities. Thus, they are generally not countercultural. White evangelicals were largely absent in the civil rights movement. And as we deal with mass incarceration and redlining, the practice of outlining certain neighborhoods is bad and keeping black people out of the building. As we deal with institutional racism, the voices of white evangelicals on this issue are often silent or subdued. Sometimes they register as a thing whisper. Now, I don't say all of this to make us feel bad. I don't say all of this to make us feel like we can never move forward, but if we do not acknowledge our history, we would never be able to run. So let's go back to that passage in Revelation. I'll read it one more time. John said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I believe that this is the vision that Jesus has for his bride, that the Father has for his people, and that the Holy Spirit can and will enable us to be. But the main question we have is how do we get there? I think Galatians 3, 24 to 29 is a good starting place. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a garden. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of according to promise. And so when you're talking about racial reconciliation, this is probably the first verse that comes up. There is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female. All of the dividing walls of hostility that we would use to separate ourselves, Jesus has broken down. And so I want to I want to kind of boost up these words a little bit with some words from Peter. In 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or revile for revile, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. If you are a Christian in here today, black, white, Asian, other, Christ has made us all one. He has made us one family, one body. I have more in common with you than I do with unsaved life. But if we want to experience that unity here, and not just at a future time in heaven, then I think we would do well to heed the words of Peter. To first have unity. We have to be on the same page. And this is only going to come through conversation. This conversation has to happen where you are. You have to have conversations and ask questions about unity, about what reconciliation will look like. This means that you will need to find the person of color. People of color, you will need to find the white person. You will have to talk. And it's going to be awkward. It's going to be weird, but that's okay. Life is very weird, and you will figure that out the day you graduate. <laughs> now, in these conversations, we have to recognize that unity here in Wisconsin may not be the same as unity in Brooklyn. But we're not going to know that until we talk to each other. The second thing he says is to have sympathy. If you become a student of history, if you read, if you're willing to educate yourself, then there is no way that you can look at poor people or you can look at people of color and say, say their positions are their fault. People made in the image of God deserving and worthy of compassion are not simply political opponents to further your agenda. They're humans, just like you. And therefore, we have sympathy. Brotherly love. We would never be reconciled to people we don't actually love. If I don't love you, we're never really going to have a relationship. We might be cordial. But I think this picture of all of us worshiping together in Revelation 7 is more than just being cordial. That's family. It's a beautiful family time. Tender hearts. This is a call for us to meet with those who meet. If you find someone in a situation, your first response is not, what did you do to get here? But it's, how can I mourn with you? Humility. One of the biggest flaws of the reconciliation is when I see people thinking they know everything. Sometimes you need to just be humble enough to listen. If you are white, you, pro- you will not fully understand the black experience. And therefore, when a black person is telling you about what they're going through, when an Asian person is telling you about what they're going through, don't try to explain it away. Just listen. Buddy and I went to a nutritionist, nutritionist last week. He's been having some health problems. The first thing he did when he walked into the nutritionist was said, I know all about health. Just tell me what I need to do. Well, clearly you don't know all about health if you're, if you're here. So just be humble enough to listen. 
Peter tells us not to do wrong in return. This goes against our human nature. See, the sin nature in us wants us to get even. Or maybe write off the person who rejects our reconciliatory advances. We keep pressing and we keep fighting for unity. I said that the first slaves were brought here in 1619. That is 398 years ago. You don't erase 400 years of history with one conversation or interaction. This is a call to long-suffering and patience. And bless each other. Bless each other. Give of your life and of yourself until it hurts. Give until you can give no more. Because that's love. That's the love that Christ has given us. Completely giving of himself to see us reconciled to the Father. And so I think if we can be managed, if we can manage to be reconciled to one another, I think this will lead us down the path to justice. The idea here is that if we're in each other's lives, if we actually know each other, if we care enough and are invested in each other, I can no longer otherize you. And you can't otherize me. You guys are college students. I don't know if otherize is a word. (laughs) So to my white brothers and sisters, when you hear the issues plaguing communities of color, because you have some black friends now, and you know their stories, hopefully you will not write off an entire people group, but will instead find them I recently was talking with a college student about social programs and government intervention. And his firm belief is that the government should not intervene. That they don't need to put their hands into what people are doing and the church just needs to step up and help people. And so I asked him, how many people do you know on welfare? How many people do you know that are doing everything that they can possibly be doing, working as hard as they can and still need to rely on government assistance? And he said, nobody. So how can you talk about what they need and what's right for them and what they should and should not do if he doesn't actually know anyone in that situation? When we talk about justice, it's being a voice for the voiceless. And if you are a Christian today, if you identify as someone who is a follower of Jesus, this is not optional. We are obligated to justice. Proverbs 29.7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. So, I went to seminary, so I have to do this at least once today. In this passage, the Hebrew word <laughs> for knowledge means an intense passion, intimate knowledge, To know means to personally involve yourself with the plight of those in need. But how can you do that if everyone in your circle of friends is of the same income as you and looks like you and has all the same interests as you? See, this is the kind of bubble mentality that makes us say that the poor are where they are because they want to be. But how can we say that if we don't know anybody who's poor? How can we say that people of color are in the situations that they are in, or they are this way, whatever this way may be, in search of favorite stereotype, if you don't actually know any people of color? There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller who says that in this passage, the wicked person's ignorance and lack of understanding are not intellectual defects, but expressions of his unawareness and insensitivity to the plight of the oppressed and his lack of concern for the poor. The righteous, those who the Bible defines righteous, purposely involve themselves, their time, 
patient, patient research, and willingness to risk themselves in confronting injustice in the plight of those who are underrepresented and powerless. Ask yourselves, who are the underrepresented on your campus? Who are the powerless on your campus? Who are the voiceless? Who are the ones afraid to speak up? Are you willing to fight for them? Do you know them well enough to speak about their struggles with empathy and in the same language that they would use? And the realest question of the all, do you care? So as I, I try to land the plane here, I want to shift our focus directly to what you can do. So often when I have these conversations, people want easy, clear, actionable steps that they can take that will make everything better. I look young, but I'm 30, which to you is old. And I can tell you, in my 30 years of life, life just doesn't work that way. It is very rare that we get clear, easy, actionable steps that will make everything better. But I want to give you some ideas. Some are a little more solid than others. Some will fit in here where you are right now. And some you might need to hold on to for a little while. And they'll come back to you later after you graduate and find yourself in the working world. And so I recognize here at Cross that we're not a very diverse campus. But there's still people of color here. And so the first thing I would tell you to do is get educated. Become a student of history. I tell my staff all the time, in the age of Google, where all the answers are at your fingertips, there's no excuse for ignorance. Usually I'm telling them that when they're asking you a question they can just Google. But in this case, what I'm saying here is in the age of Google, you have the responsibility and the power to educate yourself. It is not the responsibility of the people of color here on this campus to answer all of your questions. It's not their responsibility to educate you on the factors that have led to all of our current racial issues in America. In fact, that's that's often off-putting and alienates more than it helps. It's putting a burden on them that is just too much to carry. When I was in seminary, I went to a seminary where I was literally the only black male there. I started in the fall, but I happened to be around in the spring. And I went for a campus event, and I saw the one other black guy. And he shook my hand and said, it's your turn. And so I'm sitting in class one day, and my professor is talking about slavery in the Old Testament. And I wasn't really paying attention. I was like, do him or something. And he looks and he goes, CJ, do you have anything you want to share? And I was like, well, though, just because we're talking about slavery doesn't mean that me, as the one black person, now needs to represent the voices of all black people in all times and all places. That's, that's too much for me. So I just said no. But I was angry and I was hurt. Was that, that, that's a burden that I shouldn't have to carry. I shouldn't have to answer all the questions for all black people. And so I want you to think about that with the other students of color on this campus. You got Google. And in addition to Google, I've been working on a document that I call Race Homework. It's a bunch of books, videos, articles, documentaries that you can read and watch to educate yourself. So you don't even have to do a regular Google search. Hit me up, and I will give you the link to this, to this document I've been putting together. The second responsibility you have is to be a voice for the voiceless. If you see some things going down around here that aren't right, it is your responsibility to speak up. If you hear some things being said that are not right, it is your responsibility to speak up. It's your job to say something. And this might come at a price. It might cost you a little something. 
some social standing, you might lose some friends, but this is what the Bible would call justice. This is justice in action. The third thing you can do is get to know some people who aren't like you. I purposely put this third because I want you to, to educate yourself first. I want you to go out and learn before you just start chasing down people of color saying, be my friend. And I'm honest, this is going to require some extra effort on your part because it's, it's going to be awkward. So often when I, when I have these talks, people say, well, I just don't know what to say to a white person. Well, what do you say to a white person? You say hi. You say hi. Everyone eats. What kind of food do you like? It, it, it doesn't have to be that hard. You don't need to bring up slavery in the first conversation. <laughs> but you do need to pursue people and be intentional. See, a lot of the friends that we have, we have because we were, we were thrown in the sandbox enough times that it's like, all right, well, you're here and I'm here, so no, we're just going to be friends. And these tend to be people who are like us, similar to us, because otherwise, why would we be in the same sandbox over and over? But now I'm challenging you to go a step further, to step out of your comfort zone, to go to places you probably normally wouldn't go, to meet some people you probably normally wouldn't meet, and to be intentional about your pursuit. One thing you're going to learn after college is that once you start working, life gets really busy. And it becomes really hard to just make friends. And so the friends you have post-college, when you don't have just that time to hang out and be all lazy together, are friends you, you choose. You're choosing these people specifically and intentionally because you no longer have the bandwidth to just pour time in that time. So I want you to be mindful of who you're choosing to pour that time into. And it would be great if you started now. And then because it's can end here. The pursuit of justice and peace for the believer has to be characteristic of your whole life. So I'm calling you to live sacrificially. Wherever you end up, look out for the marginalized in your communities. Continue to advocate for those with the voice. In every industry, every single one, this is a major problem. People of color are passed over for promotions at higher rates than anyone else. A story from a dark time in my life. The six years I worked in finance was a very dark time. That's why I came to I worked in finance for six years, and at the last company that I went to, they hired, it was, a, it was a Japanese bank. They hired me and another black guy. And there were three, three older black people in the company. And on the day we both got hired, they pulled us aside and said, did they hire you together? Are you two friends? What, what's going on here? We're not used to this sudden influx of people of color. And so they took us to lunch, which was really nice of them because I like free food. And they started to share their stories with us. They started to tell us how to play the game if we want to survive in that company. One of the guys said to me that he had been here for 17 years. And for the first 13 of those 17 years, he watched himself be passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion for people who were less qualified for people who weren't as good, and for people who just weren't black. And finally, when he threatened to leave, they gave him a promotion. They were like, all right, fine, here, take, take this. And so if you see this happening where you work, in whatever industry you land in, are you going to step up and say something? You see, the Bible would say that the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. When you risk your own promotion to see justice, when you risk your job to see justice, when you risk your social standing 
to see justice. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered, whoever gathered little had no lack. Equality and justice. I'm not asking you guys to starve. I'm not asking you guys to give up everything. But what I am saying is if we are going to see some reconciliation, there needs to be a sacrifice of some privilege so that others can thrive, so that we can see that all people are given Paul says, so that they may be fairness. We're just talking about being fair. God has called us to live together. When we look at that passage in Revelation, we see that in the end, life together is the mixing of cultures and races and ideologies and heritages. If we do that here and now, that is a foretaste of heaven. When we read Jesus' prayer, and he says, on earth, as it is in heaven. Do we look at that picture of revelation, that picture of heaven, and say, this is what we're going to see here today? Do we think about cross-cultural relationships as fulfilling Jesus' prayer? See, Jesus was our ultimate advocate. He defended us before God when we had no right or no claim. If you haven't put your faith in him, if you haven't trusted in him, I would love to ask you why not. How often do we try to save ourselves? How often do we feel like we have the right answers? Only if I let you know. What are you living for other than Jesus that you feel is so, so much better? Where's the emptiness in your life? And what are you trying to fill with? We tend to fill a God-sized hole in our hearts with things and people. And it never works because they weren't designed to do that. But Jesus, our great hope, said that there is a better way. So if you haven't trusted in him, I would invite you to do that tonight. I would invite you to, to talk to people here for this campus mission for group, to ask them about what, what that means. I'll stick around for a little while afterwards. I'll talk to you about it. But if this is something you're wrestling with, don't leave here continuing to wrestle. One of the greatest witnesses we have to the world is how we love each other. Jesus said in John 13, 35, that by our love for each other, the world will know that we are his. Are we going to show the world the power of Christ and our love for each other today? Let's pray. Father, you have given us so much in your son. You have made us free and you have made us whole. He has reconciled us to you. And not just to you, but to each other. And so when we see people who are of a different race or a different ethnicity, a different class background, all we see are people making their image. We see fellow humans made in the image of God. Help us to live out that truth today. Help us to recognize that we have more in common with the believer who is of another race than we do the non-believer of our own race. Than we do with our own families if they are You've called us to live this life together. You've called us to be united by the faith that we have in Christ. 
I pray that the Holy Spirit will show us how to live there. I pray for those who don't believe in you. I pray that they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That they would see his work on the cross and know that he did it for them. That they don't have to live for themselves. That they don't have to chase after pursuits, after their enemies. But they can find all fulfillment, peace, joy, satisfaction, love, and hope in him and him alone. Father, everything I talk about here tonight will only be accomplished by your spirit. And so I pray for a healthy outpouring of your spirit on this campus. To see the reconciling work that can only come through you that way. We love you, we we praise you for what you've done. In Christ's name.